0: We have been on a journey up to this point in Mark's gospel, a remarkable journey of watching God in the flesh, the Son of God in this ministry here among us on earth. And he has been, (laughs) Jesus has been on quite a winning streak, all right, Um, undefeated season in progress. He has not met uh, anything in the spiritual realm or the physical realm that was more than he could handle. Uh, The spiritual realm, the realm of angels and demons of sin and forgiveness. He announces, my son, your sins are forgiven, sins are washed away. Uh, He encounters demonic forces, sends them running. We met a man who was inhabited by a battalion of demons. Jesus says the word and off they go and his life is restored. In terms of the physical realm, undefeated as well. All manner of disease and illness is, is sent Running. Um, Parallels man, get up and and walk, and he walks. Blind man, sight restored. Um, Woman touches the hem of his garment in in the press of a crowd, just touches the fabric of his clothes, and her years long bleeding condition is instantly resolved. Uh, Storms obeying the sound of his voice. Um, walking on water in the the gospel of Mark. We have seen once, and now in chapter 8, twice, multitudes of people fed by just a few scraps of food because Jesus prays over that, and it becomes more than enough for the thousands. It is quite a winning streak for Jesus in His ministry here on the earth. Now, in Mark chapter 8, as Jesus is in the midst of all of this Victory! The crowds obviously get bigger and bigger as the greatest show in Galilee moves around uh, doing amazing things and catching everyone's attention and imagination. Also, the scrutiny has gotten more intense as now the religious leadership in Jerusalem are, are sending people to investigate uh, this young rabbi who is, who is attracting so much attention. And now, right in the middle of Mark chapter 8 we have another miracle and it is a miracle that is peculiar uh, at first glance it is pretty odd this particular miracle he arrives in Bethsaida a little village kind of a sister town on the northern shores of Galilee to Capernaum i mean literally you could like walk there in 10 minutes And some of the villagers bring a friend of theirs, someone they care a lot about. And he is blind, and and they bring him to Jesus. And Mark tells us, we know they care about him because they literally beg Jesus to heal their blind friend. And so Jesus is going to do that. He is going to lay hands on this man and heal him at first Uh, We are told by Mark that he puts a little of his saliva on his fingers. Now, let me pause there. That's a little bit strange, but let me pause right there. It is interesting. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but as you go through the Gospels and watch Jesus heal people, I don't know that he ever heals two people in exactly the same way. Sometimes, I mean, this time saliva and, and a laying on of hands, sometimes he simply touches someone and they are healed. Uh, other times he pronounces a word of healing, uh, rise up and walk, and the paralyzed man rises up and walk. Sometimes he heals remotely uh, remember the the person in the other village and, and he says she 's healed don 't worry about it and the person gets home and that, and they find out that their servant their their servant is healed and so he heals in all sorts of ways, uh, none of them look exactly alike. Um, And then, yeah, like I said, the lady who just touches his clothing and she's healed. So none of them look exactly alike. And I think, I don't know if you'll go with me on this, but but go with me a little bit on this. That the fact that there is no particular pattern, there is no one size fits all or one five step recipe to a healing I think that's important, and I think that is quite intentional that, that we are not going to become enamored with, oh, these are the five steps to get someone healed, right? We're not going to get in there, or these are the particular words or the, the incantation that we say exactly right, and then healing comes. I think the fact that they are all different is important, because what it does is it points not to the method, but it points to the man, in this story, not to the saliva, but to the Savior. Because the one commonality in all of the healing stories in the Gospels is Jesus. And you may be thinking, well, but his disciples healed people too. Exactly. But they healed in the name of Jesus. In other words, in all of these stories of, of miracles and healings, the one common denominator is Jesus Jesus is at the center of it. So it's not the process or the procedure we need to get tied up in. These healings are intended to draw our eyes to the Savior. Now, this one is, like I said, odd. It's kind of peculiar. Um, Well, we'll just jump into it. So Jesus touches him, and then Jesus says, can you see anything now? He says that to the blind man. And here's the kicker. The man kind of sheepishly answers sort of I can kind of see he says I I see figures that I guess are people but it's kinda blurry and they look more like like trees walking around can you see verse 24 the man answers Jesus quite honestly I can't see them very clearly so then Jesus places his hands on the man a second time a second touch from the Savior and at this point his vision is restored perfectly 2020 vision verse 25 his sight was completely restored and he could see everything clearly so what's the deal with this miracle are his messianic batteries running low not quite enough power to get the healing done with one touch Maybe Jesus underestimated the significance, the obstinance of this particular condition that this man suffered from. I mean, after one touch of Jesus, the blind man goes from being completely blind to being legally blind. Would you call that a healing? Well, not a complete healing to be sure. So what's going on? Is this... The first blemish, the first defeat in the Savior's undefeated season. And we'll get back to those questions in a moment, but I will tell you this. When you look at any miracle in the New Testament, remember that the miracle is a message. It's not just a miracle, it's also a message. And so we're going to be looking this morning at what particular message are we supposed to take away from this story And we'll get there. Now, in this case, this miracle in Mark chapter 8 is sandwiched between two stories. And so we are going to look at those stories through the eyes of this miracle. Beginning in chapter 8, Jesus once again feeds a multitude of people. This time it is seven loaves of bread and a few assorted fish. And they feed all of these 4,000 people. And there are seven basketfuls of leftovers. The crowds cannot believe it. Jesus is a first century rock star. He is everybody is talking about Jesus all the way down to Jerusalem. He dazzles and delights with miracle after stunning miracle, eye-popping stuff. His teaching is captivating. He is an engaging and wise teacher. And when the performance is over, he feeds everybody. I mean, you cannot beat this before he sends them home. Everybody gets a free meal. So Jesus has a lot of fans, but still only a few followers. Jesus in Mark chapter 8 has done a great job of attracting a crowd, but not necessarily of attracting a commitment, all right? And some in the crowd in Mark chapter 8 even begin demanding to see more miracles. Miracles, miracles, miracles. Jesus, give us another miracle. Do something amazing, which leads us to a, a very important question in Mark chapter 8. How do people see Jesus? How do they see his identity? Well, frankly, some of them saw him as more of a, an entertainer, as the greatest show in Galilee. So on your outline, I'm calling this the concert Christ. You know, your favorite artist goes, the tickets go on sale for that big show at the AAC, and they are gone in 15 minutes. That's, that's how Jesus, how his tour is going. I mean, the crowds are loving this tour, the concert Christ. So some come to him, quite frankly, to be entertained. Mark says they demanded that he show them a miraculous sign. They're there for the show, right? Um, These guys in particular here in Mark 8 that are making this demand are the Pharisees. Uh, But really, they're voicing what everyone in the crowd wants. We want to see more miracles. Now, no big mystery why these crowds are growing and growing and growing. There is nothing and nobody like Jesus. These miracles are stunning. By the way, let me say, he still works miracles, guys. He still does incredible things. Do you remember last Sunday, Thomas Fox came down during our song and said, Hey, would you guys pray for me? I need a job. I really need a job. He got a job this week. Praise God. Praise God. He heard our prayer. He answered that. He still answers prayers. He still does amazing things. Now, some people in the crowd, though, that's all they want to do is see what's he going to do next. And and quite frankly, they got close to Jesus because it was so exciting. It was so stimulating. Um, On their Yelp review of the Jesus tour, they were given five stars. You know, amazing stuff. Don't miss this, you know. Um, Then there are those who came to Jesus wanting to be served. Um, it's one thing to get to watch Jesus do incredible things. It's another, in, it's another thing to be on the receiving end of something miraculous in your life. You get healed. Or that friend of yours gets the answer that they've been seeking from the Lord. Or you walk away with, with your stomach full of food from this miraculous feeding. Um, so this second bullet point, let's call this, we talked about the concert Christ. This would be the concierge Christ. the concierge Christ. Some come to Jesus to be served. Alright? Verses 6 to 8. The feeding here. Um, He took seven loaves, having given thanks, broke that, gave them the disciples, set before the crowd. Uh, They set them before the crowd. They had a, a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these should also be set before them, and they ate and they were satisfied. Put that passage up there if you would. The last line there, they ate and they were satisfied. Five-star service at the Jesus Restaurant. Satisfaction guaranteed. Now, if you have ever stayed in a fancy hotel, chances are you saw the concierge there in the lobby. And if you approach the concierge, it is... How may I help you, sir? How may I serve you, ma'am? How may I make your stay more pleasant? Um, A concierge exists to please, to assist, perhaps to give some good advice to you on where to go, what to check out while you're staying there. Now, to be clear, there was nothing wrong, okay? Nothing sinful about coming to Jesus to get healing or to bring someone that you love to Jesus to get healing or or to sit and listen to Jesus to get wise counsel to help you make your life better. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, Jesus called himself a servant. I came to serve, okay? But here's the thing. A concierge does not make demands. You with me? A concierge never makes demands of those he or she is there to serve. A concierge's job is to make you comfortable. Um, And Jesus, he wasn't there to make people comfortable. Um, He didn't come just to make our stay on earth a little more pleasant. He didn't just show up to make sure there are bags, made it from the lobby up to our room or to give us insider tips on how to get the most out of our stay on planet Earth. Um, Jesus began, starting in chapter 8, to be very clear about his identity. And chapter 8 really is kind of a crossroads because it's kind of an awakening what he's going to begin to share. Um, Because what he's going to share... It was not what the crowds wanted to hear. It did not please them. It was certainly not what his inner circle of disciples wanted to hear. Um, So, we've got the concert Christ, the concierge Christ. He is calling them to see him as the crucified Christ. That's the third thing there on the outline. The crucified Christ. While some people come to Jesus to be entertained... ...and some people come to Jesus to be served... Some, his disciples, the committed, his followers, they come to die. Yeah, that takes the air out of the room. But that's what he calls us to. Verses 34 and 35. He said toward the end of that chapter, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself... And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Let's put that passage up on the screen if, if, if you would. Yeah, there it is. So this call to come to him and die. To come to him and sacrifice and, and give your life for others. And I'm not going to lie to you. That's hard. That's hard. He wasn't getting the five-star reviews for that kind of teaching, okay? So before calling his people to a life of sacrifice, to this self-denial, to pick up their cross, he is going to very specifically spell out for them what is going to happen to him personally. He's going to talk to them about that and it starts out with him asking they're on their way up north toward Caesarea Philippi one of those cities named after Caesar named after the Emperor and along the road he asked his disciples so who do people say that I am Okay, what's the word on the street and they said well some say that you're John the Baptist back from the dead some say that you are a a visitation from the Lord. You're one of the ancient prophets come back to life like Elijah or one of the other great prophets. Now that is a softball question. Who do people say that I am? You just say, what have you have heard? You know? You could say, if Jesus showed up to you today and, and said, hey, what do people say about me these days? Well, some people say, honestly, you're, you're, you're the founder of the world's largest religion. Uh, some people say, Lord, that uh, you're just made up um, that you're just a miracle worker that's been made up by some fishermen for second century um, some people say you're a great ethical teacher um, that's a softball question who do people say that I am and then Jesus turns and looks his disciple in the eye and he says who do you say that I am which by the way is a question all of us will answer who do you say that I am and that's when Peter absolutely nails it he says you're the Christ the anointed one you're the Messiah essentially Jesus saying, you're the Savior the one that we have been waiting on for centuries remarkably Peter nails it okay he's right you're not just a miracle worker you're not just a showman You're not just a gifted religious teacher. You are the savior the world has been waiting on. Now, you probably remember what happens next. Jesus then began to speak. Okay, I'm the Christ. You're right. You nailed it. He then begins to speak specifically about what that means. It means I must suffer. It means I must be killed. And it means on the third day I will... I will rise up from death to life. This wasn't what Peter wanted to hear. And frankly, it wasn't what any of the disciples wanted to hear. So Peter kind of grabs Jesus, gets him off to the side and says, Jesus, no. He reprimands him. That can't happen. You're the Messiah. You've got a movement to lead. You're the king that Israel has been waiting on. That can't happen. I don't want to ever hear you talk about that again. Talk about dying, about suffering. Verse 33, Jesus turned around, looked at his disciples, and then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan. Remember that word, Satan? That name means adversary. Get away from me, adversary, You are seeing things from a human point of view, not from God's. You are not seeing clearly. You're seeing through a human lens. He was blinded to the truth that Jesus, in order to accomplish his real purpose for coming from heaven to earth, in order to truly be the Christ the Messiah, that he would have to give up his life to save humanity. Peter and the disciples were not seeing that. And then the Lord really dropped something on those disciples and on that crowd. Verse 34. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any of you wants to be my follower you must turn from your selfish ways take up your cross and follow me now I would just point out kind of an interesting thing to say he hasn't been crucified yet when he says take up your cross they don't have that reference point that we have he's saying take up your electric chair I mean that's a Roman mode of execution Take up your your gas chamber and follow me. Take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. Live this life of total sacrifice. And that's not a concierge Christ and that's not a concert Christ, is it? Uh, He's not there to entertain. He's not there to just troubleshoot our problems down here on earth. He is calling us to join him in the way of the cross. He's calling us to join him in serving a broken world, in sacrificing ourselves for the good of the world around us. And so that gets us to the big question, the turning point. In Mark chapter 8, it's on your outline. Will I be a fan or a follower? Will I be a fan or a follower of Jesus? Like it says in verse 34, he's calling the crowd to join his... He's calling everyone to move to this deeper level of commitment to follow him. Let's talk about that. A couple of things at this abrupt, jarring place in Mark chapter 8. It's a crossroads, really. As a disciple, I cross daily decision points that lead into the cross... In my marriage, in my home, in the workplace, in ministry, in my community, in my neighborhood, I'm picking up my cross, I'm denying myself, I'm living the gospel. I'm following my crucified Savior. Instead of Jesus being an add-on, something nice to put into your life, a little bit of Jesus, instead of Jesus being some sort of guru who gives me advice on how to do life better. The next bullet point there, I look to follow Jesus, to love others, and to minister in ways that serve His agenda ahead of my own. That's discipleship. That's following Jesus. And he spells it out in verse 35. He says, If you try... To hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, you will save it. So here's the reality, and Jesus shoots very straight here. If you live for yourself, if you choose not to accept my call, then you are wasting your life. Very, very strong stuff from Jesus here. If you're not following me, you're wasting your life. You can be Jerry Jones, get inducted into the Hall of Fame and be a billionaire, but if you're not following Christ, you're wasting your life. You can be a great family man. You can be a great homemaker. You can be a great business person rising up through the ranks of of the corporation of which you're a part, but if you don't follow Christ... You are wasting your life. When you die, it's all gone. You have nothing left. So there's that bullet point. By following Jesus, I choose to invest in eternity instead of wasting my life. And he says in verses 36 and 37... He says, and this is a great question to just think about whether you are a disciple or not. He says, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? It's a good question. And that's heavy stuff. It's a call to make Jesus Lord. It's a call to follow, even when it gets tough, even when it means daily picking up that cross and following in that way of of sacrifice, of loving people who might be difficult to love. And now we get back to the story of the blind man who's healed right in the middle of this chapter. Mark is going to talk about seeing eight times in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. Seeing eight times and guess what a couple of times he's actually going to use that word to talk about the miracle the rest of the time he's going to use that word to talk about how people the Pharisees the crowds his own disciples how they see or fail to see him and his identity how they don't have enough spiritual sight to clearly take in what it is that he is about so the blind man remember he had to receive a second touch in order to see clearly one touch helped out a bunch the second touch brought complete sight Peter and the disciples well they're going to need a second touch as well Peter's not seeing clearly in chapter 8 rebuking Jesus they still don't see him for who he is and that's what I'm grateful for Jesus is a savior of the second touch he knows that we struggle he knows that we're weak. He knows that we don't, none of us, we don't get it all at once. We don't arrive all at once. He knows that we need to grow. He knows us. And He knows our failures. And so right now, where do you need a second touch from the Savior? What part of your life has God kind of gotten a hold of but not totally what area of your life has been kind of dealt with but not exactly maybe maybe it's a spiritual thing maybe you've been worshiping a version of jesus concierge or some other version of that but but not the fullness of jesus the crucified one And yes, there is a resurrection. I get that. There is triumph. There is glory. There is Jesus ascending to heaven to reign at the right hand of God. But there's also a cross, and we cannot take the cross out of our faith. Jesus won't let us do it. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. And the denial, the selflessness, the servant heartedness of picking up that cross, that's something that we're called to, right? Maybe there's a a second touch of the Lord that you need in your marriage. Maybe you need a second touch from the Savior savior in parenting your children. Maybe you need a second touch in, in your struggle against depression. I don't know what it is. But I think all of us from time to time need a second touch from the Lord. I think we need that. And we can ask Him for that this morning. He is a Savior of the second touch. And maybe... You're here this morning because you still need the first touch. You need to cross that line of faith. Confess that Jesus is who he claims to be. He is the Messiah who died on the cross for you and your sins and who rose again to show us that there is hope, that this life is not all that there is. And you're ready to put your faith in Jesus this morning, be baptized into that name of Jesus, that powerful, powerful name of Jesus. Or maybe you just need prayers. You need to huddle up with somebody and say, Lord, I need a second touch here, or I need a fourth or fifth touch here. I need some help here. And we would encourage you to do that. However it is that you need to respond to Jesus this morning, do that as we stand together and worship.